0: Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives.
1: Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVA Nudge Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavioral change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science, and social science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of the BVNH unit. And with me is my colleague, Suzanne Kirkendall.
0: Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Eric. It's very exciting to be joining you for this episode. I'm delighted to be introducing our guest, Dominic Packer. Dominic is professor of psychology at Lehigh University. His research investigates how people's identities affect conformity and dissent, racism and ageism, solidarity, health, and leadership. Professor Packer has just published a wonderful book called The Power of Us Harnessing Our Shared Identities for Personal and Collective Success, co authored with his friend and associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University, Jay Van Bavel. Dominic, welcome to the Be Good
2: podcast. Eric and Susan, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to join you.
1: Thanks a lot, Dominique. So, uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, today for this uh, new uh, Be Good uh, episode. We are very excited to have you uh, join us. Um, maybe we could start um, by your background, your early, early days and uh, career. I think you have a PhD in psychology from Toronto University. Can you tell us about how you came to be interested in a career in social psychology?
2: Absolutely. So I uh, I did my PhD at the University of Toronto. Before that, I was an undergraduate student at McGill University in, in Montreal, in Canada. Um, and I went to university not knowing really what I wanted to study. I had I'd done a lot of theater in high school. And I thought, maybe major in theater. I had an idea that I might like psychology, but I didn't honestly really even know what it was other than it somehow involved the mind. Um, I took an introduction to psychology course and it was awful. It was a a terrible course. It was very, very boring. Uh, It was almost as if the cognitive revolution hadn't happened in this course. Um, but at the same time, I also took a social psychology course and that completely changed my life. Ultimately, um, it was taught by a, a professor called, uh, Donald Taylor. And I've actually been thinking about him a lot recently because very sadly he, he actually died a few weeks ago. Uh, but he had a profound impact on, on my life. And I actually think a, a large number of people who became social psychologists were influenced by this course he used to teach on social psychology, which was just incredibly inspiring both in terms of how he taught these stories and and jokes and insights it didn't feel like being taught, uh, but also his deep passion for intergroup relations and uh, addressing issues of systemic discrimination and inequity in society, uh, which really ultimately uh, motivated me to pursue it myself.
1: Could you share or could you have uh, other mentors that had a strong influence on you? or uh, researchers, or people who have played an influential role in your professional career?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- there's in some ways too many to to, to, <laughs> to mention. Um, but just to name a few, um, so really my graduate mentors, uh, Dr. Allison Chastine at the University of Toronto, and then Will Cunningham, who was a new assistant professor at Toronto when I was a graduate student. And he was part of a new wave in social psychology of of using uh, neuroscientific methods or neuroimaging, fMRI in particular, to study brain responses as people engaged in social psychological kinds of tasks. Um, And this was incredibly exciting to me and to the co-author of of my book, Jay Van Bavel, who was also an incredibly influential figure for me in my career. We were office mates in graduate school um, and developed a highly productive and also exciting collaborative relationship. And then just to name one other person, uh, someone we talk a bit about in the book, uh, Professor Marilyn Brewer, who is a professor at the Ohio State University where I went for a postdoc after graduating from Toronto, um, who's like a a real world leader in issues of social identity and and group dynamics and getting to work with her. I was her last postdoc. She was retiring, she left the university the same week Uh, And she moved to Australia at that point. Uh, But that was such a privilege and a pleasure to work with this, you know, true world leader um, who'd done so much in the discipline.
1: Uh, Is there one experiment you have conducted that stand out uh, in influencing your thinking or perhaps one that you are very proud of? (laughs) Maybe the same. (laughs)
2: Yeah. so I think um, probably the most influential experiment in, in terms of it launching a lot of the rest of what we ended up doing was something that Jay and I conducted together in graduate school, along with Will Cunningham, who I mentioned earlier, uh, which was a study. It's a variant of what are known as the minimal group experiments, which is when you, you put people essentially in a pretty arbitrary novel social category. Uh, in this case, we assigned people to be a lion or a tiger, there's these two teams, but they never meet the other teammates and they, you know, there's not really any reason rationally <laughs> that they should prefer their team over the other team. Yet we knew from on lots of previous work that very spontaneously people tend to, to like their team better immediately um, and to uh, discriminate in favor of their team even. There's two twists to what we did though. One was that we were interested in brain response. So we were looking at, we used fMRI to look at when people then saw the faces of members of their own team versus the other team, did we see different patterns of brain activity? And we had some hypotheses about that. But I think the other crucial thing that we did is we assigned people to mixed race teams. That is all our participants were white, uh, white Canadians, uh, but on their team, half of their teammates were white and half were black, and uh, the other team, half were white and half were black. And a lot was known at that point, or at least something was known at that point, about how the brain might react differently to black and white faces in a potentially prejudicial kind of fashion. Um, But what we found was that assigning people to a mixed-race team completely eliminated the standard pattern of racial bias in in brain response uh, and replaced it with a team bias. Now people, for example... Um, had higher activation in, in an area called uh, the fusiform gyrus, which is specialized for face processing. They showed more activation in this in this region whenever they saw a fellow teammate, regardless of what race they were, compared to an outgroup member, an out, outgroup team person. And then that activity in that brain region subsequently predicted better memory for the faces of in-group members than outgroup members. And so I have to give full credit. This was, Jay was the, absolutely the lead on this study, but we worked on it together and spent many long hours together in a, in a scanning facility. Um, and I think it really launched us on this t- trajectory to, to think deeply about the role that identities play um, in, in everything we do.
1: Before we go deeper in your book and with Suzanne, we have a lot of questions to to ask. Can you tell us the amazing stories that you share at the very beginning of your book about how you and Jay uh, became what you call a scientific uh, team? And I think
2: uh, very close friends. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, Jay, I, well, I should say, I started graduate school a year before Jay and uh, took over part of an an office in the sub-basement of the psychology department. So the basement below the basement, it was not a nice space, uh, no windows, anything glamorous like that. Um, And I settled in and then a year later, Jay showed up and there was a spare desk in the room and he asked if he could take the desk and I said, sure. Um, But then shortly thereafter, he brought in this massive bag of hockey equipment, which is, if you're not familiar. First of all, it's huge and second of all, it smells because when he was a goalie and when goalies play, they sweat and it all just seeps into the equipment and you you can't wash it. Uh, And the reason he brought it in is his apartment in Toronto was tiny and he had nowhere to put it. His wife didn't want it there, so he brought it to our office. So, it didn't start us off on the best footing Um, and I was pretty suspicious of this character. But shortly after, maybe a couple of months in, uh, we went to a department talk, a colloquium, and then afterwards, there was a wine and cheese, a sort of fancy event. And we were very junior at the time and eager to impress. And it's a room full of professors and the visiting speaker, who was some eminent person. And um, so we're trying to make a good impression. But at some point during this wine and cheese, during a conversation, Joe J choked on a a piece of cheese. Um, And it actually blocked his, his windpipe almost completely. Um, and there's some further details we go into in the book, but ultimately what ends up happening is he, he dislodges it partially and then dragged me out of the room. And I hadn't really realized what was happening. Uh, and I ended up catching on. And then I gave him the Heimlich maneuver <laughs> in a bathroom and we got the cheese out and he recovered. Um, and I have to say, we reacted completely differently to this. He, he thought it was hilarious. Um, which is bewildering to me because I was mortified and traumatized and I just wanted to go home and recover uh, and he wanted to go back and, and eat some more cheese. Um, but this sort of moment of me saving his life, I think, was a changing moment for our relationship. You know, It, it brought us together in this kind of weird moment of solidarity uh, and afterward, um, we really started talking to each other and realized how much we had in common and what our interests were and, and ultimately formed a very tight bond. Um, So he's now a professor at NYU, New York University. Uh, I'm at Lehigh University, which is really only about, I think it's about 70 miles away. Um, And so we've maintained this this collaborative relationship for yeah, 15 plus years at this point.
1: Yeah, uh, a really uh, amazing story and a story of friendship. So we understand why you are now, you have now co-authored a book. Maybe, Suzanne, you want to talk a little uh, with Dominique about the birth of the book?
0: Yes, we definitely want to get into that. So, Dominic, obviously, you've just published your first book, The Power of Us. Eric and I both enjoyed it very much. You've got all our highlights in there. Can you tell us more about why you decided to write this book?
2: Yeah, this is, um, I mean, it's a great question. I, so, I mean, the, the honest story behind it is that. Um, we hadn't thought about writing a book particularly. I mean, we're used to writing peer-reviewed articles, which are for a very particular academic kind of audience. And writing a book of this kind is a very different thing. A few years ago, I was in a book club uh, in the town I live in with a bunch of people who were not academics. Um, but we would read books and every, every month or so, one of us would choose a book for the group to read and then we'd meet to discuss it. And one month, I chose a, a behavioral science book. I thought this might be interesting to this group. Uh, Who wouldn't normally read that kind of thing? And it was by—I won't say who it was by—but it 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 was quite a popular book. Um, And the group hated it; (laughs) they really didn't like this book. And so the meeting—I felt really kind of awkward having made the recommendation. Anyway, afterwards I told Jay the story. Just as a point of interest, because he you know he he knew the book, Uh, and he said, "Well, at least this person who wrote the book—at least at least they wrote a book. Like we couldn't do that." And I said, yes, we could. We could definitely write a book. And then he said, well, what about? And I said, identity. Like the stuff we study and talk about all day long, we could we could write a book. And that got us thinking. That was about five years ago. And so over the next five years, we slowly thought about it. And we wrote, ultimately wrote a book proposal and I managed to get a publisher. Uh, we hired an agent, um, Jim Levine. And then we, once we got the contract, we realized, oh, no, now we actually have to do it. <laughs> Can we do it after all? Um, at which point the pandemic started. Um, and, you know, in some ways, you know, it's been a terrible thing globally, and it, it was a difficult time to write a book, but it also, because we weren't traveling and we had to step back from a lot of other things, some time did open up. And, and so it ultimately was written primarily throughout the pandemic.
0: Right. I think overconfidence bias was the beginning of many books. So common story. <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> so, so, you know, you and Jay are obviously very close friends, but writing a book is a whole nother thing. Why did you decide to write it together with Jay? Uh,
2: that's a, yeah. So I think writing, having a co-author at all is both a blessing and a curse, um, or a double-edged thing, you know, it it's, uh, divides up the work you know and um you have another set of eyes on everything uh, at the same time you might not see eye to eye and one challenge just just a logistical thing is just tone um you know people write even though jay and i've written a lot together in the past you write with different voices especially in a, in a more popular book where it's not just an academic article um and so we did worry a lot is how, do, how are we gonna get this you know 80,000 words or whatever, to actually have some sort of consistent voice throughout. I think the thing that allowed us to, to do it fairly well, ultimately, is we, we have a close relationship. I actually can't imagine doing this as successfully with someone who I wasn't as close to, um, in part because we're close enough to argue a lot and not have it be threatening to the, to the relationship or to our identity as, as co-authors. Um, and we, I think it's safe to say we argued about every sentence in the book. Um, you know, I knew when I wrote something, I had to convince Jay first, before the editor or anyone else saw it, I had to convince Jay first that it was a good sentence and points were worth, worth making and vice versa. And ultimately, that really improved the book. Um, but it wasn't always, I mean, smooth. There were times when we got pretty irritated with each other. <laughs>
0: Right. So how did you organize the work between the two of
2: you? So um, the book has 10 chapters. And essentially what we did is divide them up 50-50 at the beginning to to write first drafts of each one and largely just based on our particular expertise. So um, Jay, for example, has done a ton of work on uh, political polarization and and stuff related to social media with regard to polarization. And there's a chapter on that. So he was the obvious lead on that chapter. Um, I've done a lot of work over the years on dissent within groups. When do people challenge group norms? And so I was the obvious person to write the chapter on dissent. Um, and then we swapped and we you know engaged in some pretty critical review and a lot of rewriting. Um, and then I'd also say probably because of the pandemic, we joked that this was the book written through 10,000 text messages um, because we texted each other and still do today probably 30 plus times a day. Every time we had a thought or an idea or came up with a new example or heard an interesting data point or saw something on Twitter, I, we and, and um, actually became a really productive way of working. Surprising to me, I didn't think texting was a good way to work previously, <laughs> uh, but it worked in this case.
0: So last question I have before I'll hand it back to Eric is to get into the idea of social identities. We've mentioned this concept a little bit, but I think if you can tell us the really amazing story of the Dassler brothers, I think that could really help explain the concept.
2: Yes, yeah, so this is an amazing story, as you said. It's uh, So these two brothers, the Dassler brothers, uh, Rudy and Adolf, um, before the Second World War, they uh, ran a shoe company together. And it was a pretty successful company. So they made the shoes that uh, Jesse Owens, the American track star, wore to the 1936 Berlin Olympics uh, when he won a gold medal. Um, I think more than one gold medal. So they, it was not a you know, insubstantial thing they were doing, but they're brothers and they fought. <laughs> and at some point they had a huge falling out to the point where they couldn't work together anymore. It happened during the war. Um, and so after the end of the, the Second World War, they and this is a small town in Southern Germany, they split. They split the company into two. Uh, one moved across town to the other side of the river. Um, and they now started two separate companies, two separate shoe companies, and they loathed each other. They, they couldn't talk to each other. They, they, they were true enemies at this point. Um, but the remarkable thing about the story isn't really about them because brothers fight and fall out all the time. It's what happened to the town. So town's people went to work for one company or the other. And ultimately the whole town became divided. And it really was divided by this river with one company on one side and the other on the other. And it became deeply contested. It broke apart families. Um, People couldn't relate to each other anymore if they worked for the wrong company. Um, People from one side of the town weren't allowed, at least informally, to go into shops, for example, on the other side of the town. Uh, It became known colloquially as the town of bent necks because everyone would be looking down at other people's shoes to figure out, are you one of my people, part of our group, or are you one of them, part of the out group? Um, the two companies, by the way, are now famous, and <laughs> we know them as Adidas on the one hand and Puma on the other. Um, and really, they remained arch rivals, and the town remained divided until the death of the two brothers, who are buried at opposite ends of the town cemetery. So until they sort of um, they had left the scene, the town was was very much divided in this way. That's obviously that isn't. The case anymore. It's become a more cooperative relationship. Um, But we tell this story uh, in part to just show that when we think about identities, we're often thinking about the big, important, serious identities, right? We're thinking about religion or uh, ethnicity or nationality, citizenship. Um, But a lot of the identities that can shape how we think and feel are actually more arbitrary than that. Um, We can actually divide the world up in any way. So that we could make people lions and tigers, like in the experiment I was talking about a few minutes ago, or in this case, based on shoes, right? And which brother (laughs) of this family of shoemakers do you most affiliate yourself
1: with? The the book is uh, about social identities. So I think it would be a great first for our listener to define what you call social identities.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a social identity is that part of ourselves that is grounded in a collective, in in a group that we belong to. So if you think about the self, and we, early on in the book, ask people to do this. So complete the sentence, I am 20 times. And when you get people to do this, you find a variation of different things or a variety of different things in their lists. Some of them are very individual in nature. So they're unique characteristics, maybe a personality trait or skill or interest that we have that differentiates us from other people. And this can be very important to us. Um, Other things on the list very, very often are relational in nature. So this would be myself as a father or as as a son. It could be, um, you know being a a partner to someone in a romantic relationship, uh, it could even be a role like being a professor to a student um, but a lot of identities that people end up listing are are what we call social identities they're they're based in larger group memberships. It could be your citizenship, it could be your race or ethnicity, it could be your gender, it could be your religion, it could be what company you work for or what your professional identity is. Are you a psychologist or a behavioral scientist or a consultant right so all of these are identities that are grounded in the groups that we belong to. They're not the only part of ourselves, but they are a big part of ourselves. And for that reason, they end up shaping a lot of how we think about the world and what our goals are and so on.
1: Which is exactly my question now. Now that we have understood what are social identities, could you describe how social identities shape how we experience the world and the decision we make?
2: Yes. So... In the book, at least what we argue is that these identities shape or have an influence on everything from low level perceptions, including taste and smell, uh, up through the things we tend to believe, um, which can shape our goals and our preferences. And ultimately, identities are the foundation for large scale social phenomena as well, including the ability to lead uh, and the ability for groups and people to mobilize for change. Uh, so ultimately, sort of from basic perception all the way up, potentially through revolution, uh, that we think identities have a role to play in all of that. Uh, and it's it's by shaping and changing, in some cases momentarily, uh, the motivations people possess and their orientation toward the people they think are part of their own group and their orientation toward members of other groups.
1: Mm-hmm. Could you share with us uh, some concrete example or some uh, research um- that you mentioned in the book, uh, it is what I have loved also in your book. So all what you do is grounded in experiments and rigor, and uh, uh, which is really um, very uh, convincing and also uh, insightful. So do you have some concrete examples or research you would like to, to share?
2: Yes. So uh, I'll tell you about a couple of different things. So we'll maybe start with basic effects um, perception, things that these are often surprising and maybe not super important, but they show, I think the the power of of this sort of psychology. Um, so Jay, in collaboration with a friend of, another friend of ours, Michael Wool, conducted a study in Ottawa in Canada, the capital city, where all the participants were Canadians, and they set up a stand in a in a famous market uh, in the, in the capital in the city. Uh, and, the, and the stand was for a taste test. And people are asked to taste test and then indicate their preference for honey or maple syrup. Uh, both are sweet. Both are sticky. Right, They're very similar. Uh, but only one of the two is linked to Canadian identity, which is maple syrup. Canada has a national reserve of maple syrup just in case of emergency and we run out. So it's it's an important thing to Canadians. The key thing is before people did the taste test, they they completed a little questionnaire, sort of seeking information about them. Um, as you would in many an experiment, but there were two different versions. So half the participants completed a questionnaire, which really was all questions about their personal individual self. You know, really momentarily highlighting who you are as an individual. What are your interests as as an individual person, for example? The other half of the questionnaires were highlighting Canadian identity. So they asked people questions about, you know, what is your citizenship, everyone puts Canadian, what do you like about being Canadian and so on. So they're activating that, that sense of self. They then do the taste test, and what they found in the the results was that people who'd been reminded that they were Canadian preferred the maple syrup to the honey, but the people who had not been reminded they were Canadian had just been thinking about their personal identity preferred, had no no difference in their preference. They liked the honey just as much as as the maple syrup, Um, sort of illustrating that just this momentary shift in what... What lens are you looking at the world through? Or in this case, tasting the world through uh, can shape these preferences for for basic, something pretty basic, but that's linked to that identity. Um, Other examples, another example would be going back to that minimal group kind of study I talked about earlier where by putting people in a new group context. So we assign people to a team that happens to be mixed race, that standard racial biases in the study I told you about, it was in brain response and memory, but in other work, we found the same thing on implicit bias measures, for example, uh, the standard race sort of bias effects that we would observe are gone and they're replaced by a different kind of bias, right? Now it's a team bias. And again, it shows this momentary shifting of allegiance or identity. Um, and I'll just give one more example, maybe thinking about beliefs. So you know the world is an incredibly complicated place and if we're thinking about say policy preferences why do people want a certain kind of healthcare system or taxation system or the very few people have the expertise right to actually evaluate what kind of system would really work or make sense and and someone who's able to evaluate the healthcare system probably isn't necessarily going to be an expert on taxation right And yet we ask voters all the time to make judgments about what, what kind of policies should we be pursuing as societies. And the reality is we're not equipped to make those judgments in any sophisticated sense. So what do we do? We look to the people around us to help us make those choices or develop those preferences or the beliefs about how societies should be structured. And when we look to people around us, we tend to, again, look to our own groups we care about what do members of my group think about this issue, not some other group. Especially if there's rivalry between between our group and other groups. But what that means is, and there's work uh, that shows this, that people's political preferences for policy are very often driven by identity, not ideology. So it's. We like to think maybe as voters, we have ideas sort of abstractly about how the world should be ordered and it's grounded in philosophical beliefs or something, and that shapes our policy preferences. But what research has shown is that if you present people with policy options and you make it look like their policy options endorsed by your side, your political in-group, people are supportive of it. You can take exactly the same policy and tell a different group of participants that it was endorsed by the other side and they don't like the policy. And so it's not, at least for many people, a deeply principled sort of individually thought through process, it's you use your identity to make these sorts of decisions, especially for things you don't know much about or where it's very complicated. And it, it sounds, I mean, sometimes people say this is a sort of irrational rational thing. We, we don't think it's irrational at all. We think what else could you do, right? For most of domains of life, you don't have the time, if nothing else, to figure it all out. So you have to look to other people.
1: Mm-hmm. Before coming back to this uh, key topic of uh, political polarization uh, with Suzanne in a moment, I would like to ask you a a question about how can individuals use this knowledge to uh, purposely activate their own identities to be their
2: best selves? So what advice for uh, us as individuals to use this? Great question, so one of our goals with the book was to um, sort of expose these dynamics so that people are just more aware of them. So one of the, we called the book The Power of Identity with sort of two meanings in mind. One is that we think identity is identities ultimately powerful ways of changing the world. And that it's only by getting together with other people and mobilizing for a cause that change will happen. That's one type of power. But the other is that they are powerful, whether we know it or not and that they're shaping our perceptions, they're shaping our beliefs. Leaders of our groups are changing how we think about the world by invoking identities. And it's useful to be aware of that so that you can step back every once in a while and think to yourself, do, actually, do I agree with this? Like, okay, <laughs> people in my group say this is what we should be doing. Is it what we should be doing? And just being aware of how powerfully we can be influenced by these things, I think is a first step in that process. I've always been really interested in dissent and when will people challenge groups. And a key part of dissent is the ability to step back every once in a while from your group and say, are, is what we're doing right? Or is it productive? Or is it useful? Um, and people, it turns out, are capable of doing that. But you have to actually bother to do it, right? To pull yourself out of the situation, which can sometimes be hard, uh, especially if you're under a lot of time pressure or... There's a lot going on is this the time to step back and criticize maybe not um, so in terms of practical advice <laughs> one of them one piece at least is to to think about what are the dynamics of a dance. how might they be shaping your choices and your behaviors uh, and then decide whether you're actually comfortable with that um, and I'll give one more one more sort of related example would be for people trying to make behavioral change in their lives right so if someone's trying to stop drinking or quit smoking or exercise more. We also know that groups can play a big role in that, right? That if you, people who, you know, all their friends smoke a lot may have to spend some time apart from that set of friends, right? That, that, or at least that would be helpful. So they're less exposed to that influence. Uh, Likewise, one of the reasons it can be useful for people to join, say, a running group or an exercise group when they're trying to, to get more healthy um, is not just, that you know you're you're signing up for an exercise program is that that being part of that collective of everybody who's you know um, committed to it increases your feelings of commitment. It increases the social accountability, and if it becomes a part of who you think you are, I am a runner. Uh, that it's actually a lot easier to sustain that kind of motivation over time.
0: So let's circle back to that idea of political partisanship or polarization, because this is something that's becoming more and more a topic of interest in the world. So you mentioned political preferences for policy are usually driven by identity and not ideology per se. Could you tell us a little bit more about the role of social identities and what role it plays in political po- partisanship?
2: Yes, yeah, so I think um, we talk about this a lot in the book because as you say, it's a pressing issue in our times and many societies seem to be becoming increasingly polarized. Um, and one of the features of polarization, I think, is that political issues have become part of people's identities, that it's not just a matter of we all want a good healthcare system. system. What, what's the best way to achieve that? And people could disagree, you know, for very good reasons about different kinds of options. But once that becomes attached to an identity, so I am a conservative or I am a liberal or I am a Democrat or I'm a Republican in the American context, and we believe this that the only kind of healthcare system is that's right is this one, um, then you, know, you get these cascading consequences, one of which is because it's attached to who we are, then any sort of compromise with the other side becomes more difficult, more problematic, uh, because to do that might be in violation of that identity or diluting that identity. Convert, likewise, it, it can clamp down on internal dissent or internal idea generation or innovation because once we've decided this is what we think, then we're often resistant to the people who would raise alternate kind of ideas. So that's one part of the identity uh, piece of the puzzle. Another that political scientists sometimes talk about, and this is an idea that I actually find really powerful, they sometimes describe polarization as a flattening of identities that if you think about a really healthy society that's not terribly politically polarized, pol- politics is just one identity available to people. And they'll have many, many others. And it's not the same thing. So you can have a political identity and it's not the same as your religious affiliation. That's not the same as your professional identity or your racial identity or the location of the country in which you live. All of these are cross-cutting and not highly correlated. In a polarized society, it all starts to collapse down into a single dimension of po- a political identity so that depending on your politics, it it shapes or determines what type of religious belief you hold. And that also highly associated with where you live and it's associated with race and it's associated with all of these other identities that were previously available in a complex way and it becomes deeply simplified. Um, And I think we're seeing that that happening in in places. So if you know someone's political beliefs, you're, you can make a lot of assumptions about other parts of themselves, they're actually probably quite accurate in a highly polarized society. But the difficulty with that or problem with that is we don't get exposed then to people of different groups, right, we're, we're just gonna hear from the same people all the time in these echo chambers. Um, and it's also very boring. I don't think it's a healthy way to live as, it's not good for societies and I don't think it's good for individuals either.
0: Right. So another thing that you mentioned in the book is, you know, that new technology and social media are also playing a big role. Could you elaborate a little bit on that?
2: Yes. So we think that one of the, I think it's fair to, or it's unfair to, to blame it all on social media. Um, you know, people love to point to Facebook or, or to Twitter and and say, you know, it's all your fault, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and we don't think that's entirely fair. Um, what we think is that social media can serve as a sort of accelerant to polarization dynamics, that when social media arrives in a society that's already fairly polarized tends to make it worse, not better, Um, that people bring those polarized identities to that space. And then the dynamics and the incentive structures on social media sort of propel it forward in some kind of uh, pretty harmful ways. So, I mean, social media environments are, I mean, they've often been called the attention economy. Right? That ultimately, what's driving behavior on social media is attention. People are trying to get likes and clicks and retweets, and especially elites or people who are striving to become elites, politicians, pundits, and so on. The, the entire economy is based on getting people to pay attention to you. Um, and in that environment, we know something about what drives attention. <laughs> it's, it's being provocative. It's uh, being aggressive about your beliefs and, and aggressively opposing the other side. Uh, And so Jay has done amazing work with colleagues um, from around the world on those sort of social media dynamics, looking at, for example, what kind of content in in social media posts tends to get more attention or tends to go viral. Um, And they find that, for example, tweets or posts with uh, what they call moral emotional words uh, tend to get spread much more easily. And so these moral emotional words aren't just words like that are emotional, like happy or sad. And they're not just moral like right or wrong. They're words like disgust and hate. They're these deeply emotionally evocative words with strong connotations of right and wrong. Um, And those tend to get a lot of attention and then spread really easily. Uh, In other work there's so even above that, posts that mention the political outgroup are they found that every mention of political ad group increased the probability of, it, of a post being shared by 67%. Um, and so, again, for people who are trying to get attention online, they probably unconsciously are picking up those patterns and then adopting them, right? Increasingly using those sorts of words, increasingly, you know, insulting the other side. Uh, and it becomes a feedback loop. The more polarized we become as societies, the more we like to see that content uh, and those people respond to those incentives.
0: So another word that's come up a few times in this conversation is the idea of bias. So could you tell us more about implicit and explicit bias? And in the book, you mentioned there's the key role of history and institutional structure that might help explain where bias comes from. And if you could elaborate on that as well.
2: Right. So explicit bias Generally refers to bias that people are willing to talk about. They can tell you about it explicitly. Um, and so if you ask people, what do you think of terrorists? <laughs> right? Most people would happily say, I think I don't like terrorists, they're bad people. Uh, this is not a group we should support. Um, for other kinds of, of groups, uh, for example, you know, relations between members of different races, people might be much less likely to explicitly tell you if they're prejudiced or not. Uh, Maybe because they're not or maybe because they don't want to tell you. Implicit bias, on the other hand, uh, is this idea that some of our reactions and responses to members of different groups may be uh, very rapid uh, and potentially, at least to some degree, non-conscious. It might be that people react with different kinds of body language or that when people meet members of different groups, very spontaneously and automatically, different kinds of stereotypes come to mind. And it's not a conscious deliberative process. It's not intended. You didn't intend necessarily to think a particular thought about uh, a member of a group, uh, but it might just pop into mind. And that those more spontaneous reactions can also influence how people behave, uh, potentially, especially if they're not aware of them. And so a lot of attention in social psychology over the last 20, 30 years has been to these more implicit types of processes. Um, And there's lots of debate as there is in any academic discipline about exactly how we should define the terms and how influential are these sorts of reactions and so on. Um, but I think very broadly can think about as explicit would be conscious biases about pe- which people might not be shy about talking about. So when there's a white supremacist rally, right? And you see it on the streets of, in American cities, that's very explicit bias. Uh, implicit bias would be more subtle, potentially less conscious kind of responses. Um, and a lot of attention is paid. So I work at a university, my university, and I think most universities, in, at least in the United States, have had in recent years, things called implicit bias training, which is trying to make people aware that this is a possibility and potentially by being aware, change their behavior, become less susceptible to influence by these sorts of biases. Um, it's trying to change attitudes, it's trying to change what's in the head of individuals. And psychology especially has a long history of, if we could change people's hearts and minds, we would reduce many of the social inequities in the world. And there's some truth to that, absolutely. It's a really important goal. But one of the things we talk about in the book, and that's influenced by many other scholars, not just in psychology, in fact, probably more outside of psychology, is that even if you made everybody like everybody, (laughs) if that was a possible thing to do, you still probably would not address some major systemic disparities and inequities in our society because they're built into systems and institutions so that they operate, whether people are biased or not, as individuals. Um, And so we give some examples, but like sentencing guidelines in the United States, some crimes have higher sentencing guidelines than others. For a variety of reasons, those sentencing guidelines are racially biased and they, they tend to overly punish Uh, marginalized communities as opposed to the the white community, Um, it doesn't matter whether the judge in a courtroom is prejudiced or not. In those cases, the the law is biased, and so the outcomes will be biased. Another example, just to in the university context, um, American universities, I think this is less common in other part of the world, but a lot of American universities, including mine, have what are called legacy admissions which is that there's a pool of the students admitted every year who are um, the children of alumni, so people who've come to the university before. Um, and you can understand why universities would want to do that. It, you know that these people, these families are committed to the institution. They are more likely to donate money to the institution. Um, they'll be really passionate and excited to come to the university because their parents or their grandparents came. Um, but if you think about it in a structural sense, you quickly realize that that is going to introduce bias into your admissions process in the favor of, generally speaking, wealthy white people. Because who went to these universities in the past, right? Go back 30 years, these universities, including mine, were almost entirely wealthy, they're expensive, and they were almost entirely white. And so if you're preferencing the children of alumni in your admissions decisions, inevitably you're preferencing, for the most part, wealthy white applicants. Despite being a university, and this is not just my university, this is like pretty much everywhere in the United States. Um, you know, you're explicitly saying we want to have a much more diverse student body, we really value inclusion, uh, but this policy is actually working against that. Uh, and it's a policy matter, it's just the way we're structured matter that needs to change, not something about the hearts and minds of, of uh, individuals on campus.
0: And we'll definitely want to come back in a little bit to those bigger picture systemic issues. But I have one more question before I hand it back to Eric to ask about how we apply this to the workplace. And my question is, what would be some solutions to reduce bias and you know discrimination and polarization? You mentioned implicit bias training may not be the way, um, but do you have other recommendations?
2: We do. Um, so part of it, Because our book is focused on identity, we talk about the potential for identities to be a a part of the solution. And even thinking back again to that minimal group study I started with, with the Lions and the Tigers, it's sort of proof of concept, at least, that if you can change the groups people are affiliated with, it can change other kinds of biases. So if you bring people together so they share a common identity of one kind, it could reduce the divisions based on some other identity often we think about this as superordinate identities. So back to the political context, you know, you have Republicans and Democrats in the United States, the superordinate identity is America, right? And if you could get people to feel identified as American as opposed to political identities, it can reduce those divisions. And there have been points in history when the national identity becomes very salient to everybody and it does indeed reduce those political tensions internally. Um, there's some amazing work, and we talk about a study by a, a scholar called Salma Musa, who's uh, I think a newest assistant professor at Yale. Uh, she's a political scientist where she sort of took that idea uh, to northern Iraq, where there's been enormous tension um, between the Christian and the Muslim community, especially uh, after ISIS, the terrorist organization, uh, you know, devastated the Christian communities there. Uh, So this is not an easy environment to to help people, you know, feel comfortable with each other across those group boundaries. And she created a soccer league, an amateur soccer league um, composed of Christian teams of young people. Uh, But she randomly, and she got the agreement of the community to do this, she randomly was able to assign half of these teams to actually be mixed religion teams so that they would take in a a small small group of, of Muslim players. And they then played a season together. And she was able to compare at the end of the season, how were those intergroup dynamics between Muslims and Christians for the players on the teams where they played with some Muslims, the Christian players had, had some Muslim teammates, versus the Christian players on the all-Christian teams. And she found that the teams that had been mixed religion, those players, those Christian players, were now more open to uh, interacting with and supporting their Muslim teammates. They were more interested in playing in a similar league and having those opportunities in the subsequent year. Um, And one really interesting finding from her work, I think, is that those effects were stronger for the more successful teams. So the teams that did really well in the soccer league, the ones that were winning games, working together across those group boundaries in pursuit of a common goal was really powerful. So not only do we have a common goal, but we're actually achieving it together. And that feels really good and causes us to become a new identity, right? It's our team and these are my teammates and for that reason, I value them. Um, So identity is a big part of the puzzle, but we're also really careful to say in the book that that's only a piece of the puzzle because inequities are built into systems and institutions and the way societies are structured. It's not just a matter of changing hearts and minds, as as uh, sort of highfaluting as that rhetoric can sometimes be. We have to sometimes grapple with the structure of the laws and the way procedures work, and um, and to do that requires a different kind of, of thing. It requires mobilizing for political action and you know voting for politicians who want to do that, or signing petitions or marching in the street in some cases.
1: Uh, we would like uh, to have your perspective regarding uh, social identities in the workplace. You have written at the BV Energy Unit, we are working quite a lot uh, accompanying uh, leaders, uh, political leaders, and also CEOs of large organizations. And you have written something which is, I think, very uh, powerful. Leaders influence others by managing their social identities. Could you uh, elaborate on this?
2: Absolutely. So I think... There's a phrase we love coined by two other social psychologists, uh, Alex Haslam and Steve Reicher, who've thought a lot about social identities and leadership over the years. And they describe leaders as entrepreneurs of identity. Um, that what really great leaders at least are often doing is helping their followers, whether it's employees in a company or citizens in a nation, um, think differently about who we are. Where have we come from? What does it mean to be part of this group, this organization or this team or nation? Um, what, Who are we, for that reason, what are we trying to do and where are we going? Uh, and that this is a really powerful thing because it brings people together in pursuit of uh, something bigger than themselves as individuals. Um, I was recently talking to someone who was asking me about like the difference between a vision and an identity. And in some ways, an identity, it goes much deeper than a vision. So a vision is a particular view of, you know, what we should be doing right now to achieve some sort of strategic end, right, Uh, which can be very inspiring in some cases. Um, But an identity is a concern for us, who we are. And it's bigger than the vision in the sense that the vision could change, but the identity will still motivate the group, the company, for example, to rally around whatever the new direction is, right? And I think that's actually really important that leaders in, in organizations often think about, you know, we got to mobilize people and, and inspire them by some really compelling vision, but deeper than the vision is the identity itself. Like why would they care about the vision in the first place? It's because they care about us. And what you're trying to, do to convince them is the best thing for us is to pursue this set of goals. Uh, but the us is deeper than the goals. Um, and so uh, to me, at least that's, that's why it's a really powerful idea.
1: And uh, to you, what, what are the concrete
2: ways to lead effectively for good? That's a really difficult question. <laughs> in part because the, tr- the trickiest part about that is the for good part, because one of the things we acknowledge in our work is that effective leadership is not the same thing as doing it for good. And that many of the tools of identity leadership can also be used for bad. That it can be a very dangerous thing that the tools that mobilize people and make them feel really strongly identified with a collective and want to pursue those collective goals can be perverted or subverted in a very bad direction, right? That if those collective goals are about triumphing over other groups, or if those collective goals involve seeing other groups as enemies, as uh, as dangerous, as something that must be eliminated, then you can mobilize people to do some really extraordinarily terrible things. Um, so in some ways, the, the, the valence, the morality of, of, of leadership is, is is orthogonal, is separate from uh, the tools. <laughs> uh, so that, that that for good part is really tricky. It is like uh, nudging for good or for bad. Exactly. We had a discussion uh, last week with Richard Taylor
1: and uh, it's
2: Nudge could be used for that. Absolutely. Yeah, I 100% agree, agree with that. And it's the same thing, I think, with these identity tools. And in some ways, some of the best examples of, of, good, of effective identity leaders are people who actually did terrible things. Um, you know, that the Hitler, for example, Adolf Hitler is an example of someone who very much, you know, exploited and changed Germans' conceptions of the national identity for a period of time. Uh, in a way that energized the population in a terrible <laughs> and tragic fashion, right? Um, which comes back in, in some ways to the point I made earlier, that one of the purposes of the book is to re- reveal these dynamics, both because we think, you know, leaders can use it for good. And, and we'd like to empower that at the same time as followers, because most of us, most of the time, our followers uh, should be aware of these The power of these dynamics so that if you see it heading off in the wrong direction, you A know what's happening and B might be able to better resist it, which in no way answers your question.
1: (laughs) Uh, Maybe we are close to the end of our conversation. So two final questions, maybe one for Suzanne, Uh, you could uh, maybe answer in two hours, but we'd like you to answer more briefly uh, about big
2: social challenges. So we conclude the book with a chapter called The Future of Identity, where we tried to think about how would identity dynamics, like we've been talking about, play out with some big challenges we think the world confronts, Uh, one being rising inequality, one being climate change, and one being potentially threats to democracy. And I think the, the question in each case is, or a big part of the puzzle in each case is, can we rally sufficient numbers of people, to push for the changes we need to address these problems. And the problems aren't all the same, and they require different kinds of things. Uh, But in each case, I think we need people, and in many cases, large numbers of people, to push their societies and their politicians, in particular their leaders, uh, to embrace um, different kinds of policies, whether it's with regard to protecting the climate better or more quickly, uh, whether it's regard to changing policies in, in nations, which is not everywhere, but many countries have become more inequitable over time. Um, or in the case of, of potential threats to democracy, can you rally forces or people behind a pro-democracy type of movement when many of the groups that that would involve normally have very different interests from each other? right? They, in, a, in a well-functioning democracy, groups don't have to ride together to protect democracy. In a democracy that's backsliding, like, uh, like I believe at least the United States is currently, you need a lot of people who are not normally allies because they're fighting over issues they don't agree on, which is fine, that's good for a democracy, um, have to come together as allies in support of a democratic system. And that involves seeing a new identity, seeing some point of commonality that groups that actually see themselves ordinarily is very different start to understand themselves as having something in common.
1: Thanks a lot. I think very insightful. Maybe a a final question. Uh, uh, You have just launched, I think, a newsletter. And could you tell us more about this uh, newsletter, your objectives, and what will be the content of it?
2: (laughs) Thank you for asking. So it's on Substack. It's called powerofus.substack.com. It's a free newsletter. It has been coming out every week although we're playing with that and just to be completely honest we're still figuring out the identity of this newsletter <laughs> um, we aren't 100 percent sure but our goal is to talk about all the sorts of issues we've been discussing today and how does identity play out or relate to or help to make sense of ongoing events um, whether it's things in the news uh, related to political issues which we write about quite a bit it could also be just more fun things so we've written a few a couple of newsletters about food for example and and how identities can shape the perception of and experience of of food and why people like certain kinds of foods over others and how food can become the basis for identity so that you can adopt a you know a vegan or a vegetarian identity in opposition to a carnivorous you know, meat-eating identity um, so our goal is to you know present some of these ideas and uh, to make them accessible to a to a broader audience
1: Thanks a lot, Dominique. I think it's time to uh, say uh, thanks a lot. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, if you have, I don't know, uh, if you want to uh, leave our listener with uh, something, uh, where they can find out more about you, about
2: your work. Absolutely. So we have a website for the book. It's called Power or the website. It's Power of Oz all one word, power of us, uh, dot online. And on that website, there's a ton of information about the book and as well as other things we're doing, including the newsletter. There's links to reviews of the book, uh, including a review in science and a review in Publishers Weekly, which hopefully will convince people it's uh, you know, well worth reading. Um, uh, that's probably the best source of information, actually, about, about everything we're doing. We try to keep that up to date and put it all up there. Thanks. Bye. Have a great day.
0: Thanks, Dominic
2: thank you eric thanks suzanne
0: be good a podcast by the bva nudge unit